Okay, so welcome back to Fish Across the Pond. I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Geffner from Marlins Radio. Glenn, how are you? Peter, it's great to be with you. I'm a devoted listener. I'm amazed by uh, the way you guys follow the team on a daily basis. Uh, love the Marlins talk across the pond and uh, happy to be with you today. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Glenn. It's um, I, I'd say you're probably our first guest if that makes sense so uh it's great to have you on it's going to be our 20th episode actually uh that this will, will will feed into so it's great for that and i appreciate your feedback and support it's uh it's great to hear um glenn i'm mindful that not everyone that listens to this pod is is a marlins fan uh at all and, and they may not be aware of um of who you are and your background so you know, for those guys, maybe just a quick intro in terms of yourself, how you ended up as as the Marlins play-by-play uh, -play guy, and you know what what got you into broadcasting. Sure. Well, I grew up in Miami, but when I grew up in South Florida, it was long before the Marlins even existed. Uh, I left Miami to go to college in 1986, and the Marlins were born in 1993. But uh, I was always interested in journalism, and when I got to college at Northwestern University near Chicago. Uh, I studied journalism, but I got involved with the student radio station and began broadcasting football games, basketball games, baseball games, doing talk shows, things like that. Uh, and coming out of school, I had the chance to work in minor league baseball at the AAA level for five years in Rochester, New York, with what was then the Baltimore Orioles' top minor league affiliate. Uh, and from there, I had my first major league opportunity. I spent six years with the San Diego Padres, then uh, five years with the Boston Red Sox, and at the end of the 2007 season, I had a chance to return home and go to Miami. So I've been with the Marlins ever since. Uh, the chance to go back to the city where I grew up meant a lot to me. It's a great place to raise a family. Uh, so we've really enjoyed our time with the Marlins. There have been more downs and ups on the field over the course of the 12 years that I've been there so far. But I yep. feel like it's an exciting time to be a part of the team with what we hope is a very bright future in front of us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree on that side. Are you uh, so? Would you say that you're a Marlins fan now? I know you've obviously been with the club, you know, over over ten years now. But well, you can't help but be a fan. Uh, I think at the same time as a broadcaster, you need to have some objectivity. But mm -hmm. I think if you listen to the games on the radio, you can tell who I'm rooting for. And certainly, my job is easier to do when the team is playing well. Uh, it can be rough when things aren't going well. So certainly, they sign my paycheck also. So that's another reason to be a fan. But uh, <laughs> there's no doubt. You, when you travel with the team, when you're around these players every day, yeah. day in, day out, year in, year out, you're part of a family. So it's hard not to certainly root hard for them. And uh, at the same time, you got to maintain that objectivity. But there's no question I'm a Marlins fan. Yeah, good. Well, you're in the right podcast then. That's that's, sure. that's the main thing. <laughs> good. I tell you, it's to be um, a radio play-by-play -play guy. Um, you know, versus doing the, you know, the TV broadcast, it's, it's obviously such a different, uh, I suppose, challenge. Obviously, the listeners can't see what you can see. So trying to explain it, it's, it's truly incredible because so much goes on with baseball, you know, during just one game. So it's, it is, it's an incredible skill you have. What, what's the most challenging thing of, uh, of doing radio play by play? 
it's a very astute observation. I don't think that every viewer or listener would realize how different a radio broadcast is than a television broadcast. It's what I love about radio is the fact that you're solely responsible for what your listener is going to know about the game. The tough part is if I don't see something with my own two eyes, there's no chance that the listener is going to see it. So I've got to constantly be aware of everything happening in the ballpark. Uh, when you're doing a television broadcast, you've got for a typical game at least eight, sometimes as many as 15 or 20 cameras. You've got a stage manager in the booth. You have a statistician. You have a producer and a director talking to you in your ear, and everybody's pointing out different things. You have instant replays you can go to. On radio, it's just myself and my partner in the booth. There's no statistician. There's no stage manager. There's nobody producing or directing or pointing things out to us. Wow. So we've got to be completely locked in and alert for the three hours or so that the game is played, or as fans in London may say after the Red Sox-Yankees games, uh, the four and a half hours or five hours the games might take sometimes. Wow. Uh, hopefully closer to two hours, though, than to five. But uh, that's the big thing is you have to understand the responsibility you have if you don't see something, it essentially didn't happen as far as your listeners are concerned. So you really need to be locked in for every moment of the game, uh, yeah. on the field, off the field, everything that's happening. So no no drinking beers during the uh, broadcast then, no? Not at least for me. Maybe my partner every now and then, but not <laughs> me. <laughs> no, he doesn't drink either. Uh, good, good. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really interesting insight. And yeah, it's, um, it's such a skill to, to relay what you're seeing to the listeners i the first time i listened to your your radio um broadcast was was actually this this year i i'd been to a liverpool football uh club match in the evening in the champions league and i was i was headed back from driving back from liverpool to leeds and i thought oh the marlins are on brilliant um i'll, I'll flip on the the broadcast now and, and listen to you guys and I, I i came away and i think i tweeted about it as well i thought it was an incredible experience um, so I, I tip my cap to you. It's um, you're truly outstanding. I'll, I'll recommend it to anyone to, to to give you guys a listen. Well, we appreciate that. And now I know you watch the games on MLB.tv. You mm -hmm. have the option of watching the television broadcast, but also listening to the radio broadcast simultaneously. Uh, so I know a lot of fans like to do that. But what you'll see if you go back and forth is what somebody on TV might say in eight words on radio, we say in 22 words because yeah. on TV you can see. Uh, if it's a ground ball to short, you can see the shortstop backhanded the second hop. You can see the throw was low but scooped by the first base. And but on TV, you've got to, on radio, you've got to explain all of that. Exactly. So uh, it's very interesting. It's a totally different dynamic doing the games on the radio. But it's that description that really excites me about doing it. Yeah, have you done TV stuff as well? I have, uh, not in Miami, but uh, previously working in Boston, I did a lot of television work. Uh, and it's funny for me. Uh, the game ends, and I almost feel like I had the night off. You just you speak so much less. Uh, television really is for the analyst to be the lead person more than the play-by-play -play person. There's so much less description required, so many fewer words required on television. Now, there are reasons why television can be a lot harder to do as well, because TV is more of a team sport, where radio is more of an individual sport, if that makes sense. In yep. TV, you've got to be in concert with the shot that's being shown on the television screen for the viewer. So you're constantly watching the monitor on TV. Uh, you've got statistics and graphics and things showing up on the screen that you've got to get to. On radio, it's up to me to talk about whatever I want to talk about at any point in time. I don't have to wait for a producer to show a shot of the bullpen to tell you that somebody's loosening up in the bullpen or that there's a pinch hitter on deck, things like that. So uh, it's a very different animal. Uh, there are advantages to both. There are challenges to both. 
Uh, but for me, the biggest thing is on radio, we don't have to wear makeup, and I prefer it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Fair call. TV guys wear a lot of makeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I also tip my hat to, to Paul and Todd and the team. They, they do great. a great job as well. They're, They're great. great guys. Um, and actually, a lot of the, the other so the, the non-Malins fans that I speak to, um, they actually uh, say those guys are great too. They they think the coverage is great from you know from the Marlins guys. So they're impressed. So awesome. What what I mean, you've been doing this a long time now. So what what are your favorite moments? Bearing in mind, I've only started fully watching baseball, you know, on a daily basis since 2016. So you know, some of your favorite moments will probably be prior to 2016. But you know, there's probably been some awesome times when you've been calling plays or you know things have happened uh, i don't know if you could think of a couple well for, for me this is 28 years in baseball 23 in the major leagues and 12 in miami uh certainly the absolute best memories i have were when i was with the red sox and had a chance to call world series there mm-hmm. uh and win a couple of world series while i was with the red sox in 2004 and 2007 and nothing gets better than that uh over the years with the marlins certainly it's been so much fun watching young players get up to the big leagues, debut, establish themselves, and become stars. Uh, thinking about Giancarlo Stanton, who I know was your guy, uh, mm-hmm. Jose Fernandez, uh, who's one of my all-time favorites. And mm-hmm. uh, when I think about Marlins games that I've broadcast over the years, the one that comes to mind first, and it's the most horrible memory that I have, uh, but the game when we came back after Jose passed away. And, and oh, yeah. having to broadcast that game and being a part of that night and that experience uh, and just seeing the emotion on the field, not even just from Marlins players, but from the New York Mets players uh, who could really sympathize and empathize with what the Marlins were dealing with, uh, with the fans, with so many of the things that happened in that game with D Gordon hitting the leadoff home run in the first inning, a guy who never hits home runs. Incredible. Getting in there and hitting that home run. Justin Bohr hitting a triple in that game. He never hits triples, but he did that night. But uh, my partner, Dave Van Horn, and I literally were broadcasting the game in tears because yep. the emotion was just overwhelming. And I'm, I'm getting goosebumps. I just did a, another podcast about a week or so ago, and I made the exact same observation in talking about this game. I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about it, uh, even now a few years later. Yeah. It was just one of those experiences you wish you were never a part of, but it'll be with you forever. And uh, of all the Marlins games I've done over the last 12 years, that's the first one that comes to mind. And mm-hmm. that's the one that more fans will bring up to me when I talk to them, that they remember that broadcast, that night, that game more than any other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it's one that sticks in my mind as well, actually. And that that D Gordon home run for sure, that emotion just pouring out of him and the team and everyone there was incredible to see and yeah it does does take you back but and unfortunately as well i mean we're you know we're, and, uh, i'm sorry to cut you off but it, i'm reminded today's july 2nd as we record this today's the anniversary of the day jose came back from his tommy john elbow surgery and he made his first start against the giants he talked about great moments and great games uh and after working as hard as he did to come back uh it cost him about 14 months of his career uh, he not only won the game against the Giants that day, he hit a home run in that game, which for him was bigger than pitching well. He loved to swing the bat. Yeah. Uh, that was one of my all-time favorite Marlins games, and it was actually uh, four years ago today, July 2nd, 2015, wow. when Jose came back from the surgery. What was he like as a pitcher? He was unbelievable. He was electric. You knew every day when you woke up when he was going to pitch, you had a really good chance to see something special when he got to the ballpark that night. The mm-hmm. energy that he brought... Uh, there are players I talk about over the years 
who play the game with a smile on their face. Ken Griffey Jr. was like that. Jimmy Rollins was like that. Jose Fernandez was like that. He just lifted everybody up around him. He made everybody better. Uh, he just electric is the word that I always come back to with Jose on and off the field. He had this electricity about him. And uh, for me, he'll go down as one of the greatest what ifs in baseball history. Uh, what if Jose would have played a full career? What, what records would he have broken? How many Cy Youngs would he have won? How many World Series might he have pitched in? Uh, it's such a tragedy for him and certainly his family and the families of the other two victims. But uh, he was among the greatest personalities. And I was lucky in San Diego to work with Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman, a couple of Hall of Famers. Ricky Henderson was there for part of my time in San Diego. Uh, in Boston, I was with Pedro Martinez and David Ortiz and Jason Veritek and great players like that. But uh, nobody rivals Jose when you talk about a personality and just the charisma that he brought every day and the excitement that he brought every single day. Yeah, <clears throat> sadly missed Jose. And, you know, the, you're right, the what if uh, he yeah is. And, and I guess the Marlins, are, and I've been thinking that, and we talk about it a lot on this podcast, you know, what if it, it was such a pivotal turning moment, really, for, for the club. And, you know, it's, it, you know, a lot's, a lot's gone on since then, for sure. So You're exactly right. And I don't think that's talked about enough uh, when you look at what's happened in the years since, uh, had Jose lived, things might be very different for this franchise right now. And there was a great piece written by Jason Stark on a website called The Athletic this past offseason talking about the what if of Jose Fernandez mm -hmm. and that Jose would have actually gone to free agency potentially this past offseason. And would he have stayed in Miami? Would he have gone elsewhere? What would he have earned but uh, Jason wrote about the fact that last year would have been the year, Jose's potential last year with the Marlins, uh, and assuming they hold on to Stanton and Yelich and some of those players, could last year have been that year where the Marlins really got over the hump and maybe won a World Series even, uh, but we'll never know. Yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, we never will. And that, I mean, that was the team that turned me into a Marlins fan. You know, I, I mm -hmm. went out to Miami in 2016 for a family trip and... Um, you know, we went to went down to Marlins Park and was completely blown away by, well, Giancarlo hit a huge home run. And I thought, wow, this, you know, this this guy's incredible. Uh, they they beat the Diamondbacks on the day. And I, at that point, that's what converted me and, and turned me into a Marlins fan that day and followed them pretty much on a daily basis, you know, ever since. So that's great. It's and when people talk back and go, okay, the Marlins are not looking great now. How have they traded away all these players? How didn't they achieve anything with that lineup? Um, you know, it's hard to fathom. But the reality was, beyond Jose, the, just the pitching wasn't there really. I don't think at the time. So, you know, what if, what if? But um, Glenn, I, I think it's right that we we touch upon what I'll what I'll deem as the thread. Um, which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I'm. And again, it's maybe useful for you to quickly summarize the, the key points from the thread. It was, you know, back in June where you, I guess, kind of put it out there, I'd describe it as, in terms of your thoughts and feelings and, you know, what, how we should, or how people in Miami should be embracing the Marlins, et cetera. So maybe a quick summary on that and we'll pick the bones out of it and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll round up. Sure. Well, it's hard to talk about it without a little bit of the history. And I know maybe many of your listeners don't know all of the history, but this is a franchise that was only born in 1993 uh, and drew three million fans, which is kind of the 
the number, if you draw 3 million fans in baseball, you're doing a lot of things right. But in that very first season, the Marlins drew 3 million fans, which was a staggering number. Playing in a football stadium, not a ballpark, uh, mm-hmm. without a roof, in the heat, in the rain, which is terrible in South Florida in the summertime. Uh, then in 1994 and into 95, Major League Baseball went through a strike, and a lot of fans fell off after the strike. When the players came back, fans didn't come back. The Marlins were able to win the World Series in 1997 in just their fifth season. Uh, but after that 1997 season, the then owner of the team sold off most of the top players. Uh, and this vicious cycle of the Marlins developing some players and then trading them all away kind of began. And and a lot of cliches were born. And the, the franchise kind of took on a personality, some of which is fair, some of which isn't fair, that then played out through multiple future owners uh, and right down to the last owner, Jeffrey Loria, who uh, – Bought the team in 2002. The Marlins won the World Series in 2003. Where, where the story's a little bit inaccurate is that there's this perception that then he just sold everybody off after 2003. He really didn't. Uh, he kept most of the team together in 04. He actually added to it in 05. But the team didn't win again. The team still wasn't drawing. At that point, he had no hope for a new ballpark. The revenues were among the lowest, if not the lowest, in baseball. And then he did break up that team. Uh, finally, the Marlins under Jeffrey Lawyer were able to get the new ballpark built in 2012. And everybody thought that might be a great inflection point for the franchise. Uh, and they brought several free agents in. They spent a lot of money going into the 2012 season, but they didn't spend it wisely. And the team was still terrible. And fans didn't come to the ballpark after the very initial bump in attendance just because of the curiosity with the new park. Uh, and they broke that team up, even though that team had no chance of winning. Uh, but then over the years, you bring in some players like a Giancarlo Stanton and a Christian Yelich and a Jose Fernandez and a JT Real Muto, uh, a good young core of players. And what you heard from people was, well, you know, if they get a new ballpark, we'll come to the games. Well, they got a new ballpark and people didn't come to the games. We, we need to get out of the heat and the rain. We need a roof. Well, now you have a roof and people still aren't coming to games. Well, you need to sign your players so I know they're going to be here for the long haul. So they gave Giancarlo Stanton the biggest contract in sports history. 13 years, $325 million. They gave Christian Yelich an extension very early in his career to lock him up for the long haul. And people still didn't come. Mm. Uh, Eventually, Jeffrey Loria sold the team. They never had a winning record in the eight years that Stanton was here and the five years that Stanton and Yelich and Ozuna and Jose, you know, a lot of those guys were all together. They never even had a winning record. Uh, New owners came in, Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter. They purchased the team at the end of the 2017 season. And the bottom line is they inherited a mess on and off the field. They inherited a team that was losing a ton of money, a team that wasn't drawing any fans, and a team that wasn't winning and wasn't even close to winning. And and they decided, as really anybody who looked at the situation objectively would have decided, it's not working. We got to blow this thing up and start from scratch. And you look at other teams that have been successful in recent years, like the Houston Astros, like the Chicago Cubs, It's following the model that they've laid out where if you don't want to just win a World Series one year, but you want to contend year after year after year, if you want to go to spring training every year knowing you have a chance to be competitive, you've got to build from the ground up. You've got to develop a good core of young players. You've got to develop those players in waves so that you've got talent at the major league level. You've got talent to replace it at the AAA level when you have some injuries. You've got talent right behind those guys at AA. You've got talent in A ball. You want waves of players. Uh, And that's what in the last two years, the new ownership group has begun to develop. And you're seeing it now where the Marlins have one of the better starting rotations in all of Major League Baseball with all very young pitchers. 
and then three of those pitchers get hurt, they're lost for extended periods of time, but you bring up three more pitchers who've stepped right in, and they've been every bit as good. And, and so you're just now beginning to see this plan come to fruition. The team got off to a terrible start this year. Boy, I'm taking a long time to answer your very simple question, aren't I? I I'm getting down to <laughs> oh, the no. answer, though. The team got off to a terrible start this year, 10-31 and 31 through the first 41 games. You had several key players hurt. Since that time, over the last 41, after 10 and 31, they've gone 22 and 19. You see this dramatic improvement. You see the pitching. You see what Garrett Cooper can do now that he's healthy and he's on the field on a daily basis. You see Brian Anderson emerging as a really talented young player in the game. You see the arms on the mound day after day, the starting pitch and giving a chance to win. So my point was, look, I understand a lot of folks are staying away because they're upset about what happened after the 1997 season or after the 2003 season. But look, this is a new era. You have new ownership. They've lowered ticket prices. They've lowered concessions prices. They're, they've told you exactly what their plan is, and now you're beginning to see it play out. It's time to move on. It's time to say, you know what, I'm going to give this team a chance. I'm going to give this experience a chance. And rather than hold a grudge from 1997, I'm going to take my family out to a ball game and have some fun. I can get a ticket for as little as $10. I can get most concessions for $3 or $5. It's a bargain to go out to these games compared to other professional sporting events or even to go to see a movie. Let's give them a chance. Let's, let's kind of get over ourselves and give this team a chance. It's playing better. No, it's not a finished product yet. No, it's not a championship team yet. It's not a playoff team yet. But they're really making progress. These owners have kind of reached out to you. Now it's time to reach your hand back out to them and show them that you see what's happening. and we got a long way to go still, no question. And in the short term, there's still going to be more losses than wins. I completely understand that. But there's no question that a corner has been turned. We've seen that over the course of the last couple of weeks, or the last couple of months, really. Uh, and that's what my point was. You know what, South Florida? It's time to start moving on and come out. Just I'm not saying buy season tickets. If you've never been to a game, come to one game. If you go to two or three a year, go to five a year. And just come out, have some fun, and give this product a sample. And you might actually find that you're going to have a pretty good time. You're going to enjoy these guys. Uh, it's a fun group to watch. They play hard every night. They play right down to the final out every night. Even when they come up short, the games are competitive. They're they're fun to watch. And had the big comeback against the Phillies over the weekend, down 6-1. Mm -hmm. to one. Had the big uh, six-run inning, won the game 9-6. to six. And the ballpark atmosphere was as electric as any I can remember in recent years. And you're reminded how much fun it can be. So that was the point of my thread. It was just that, you know what, guys? It's time to move on. Forget about what happened five years ago or 20 years ago. It's a new era, new owners. They're doing a lot of things right. It's time to come back to the ballpark and give this team a chance. Yeah, well, and also, Glenn, I must say, it sounds like like they listened. Like you said, the uh, from what I've seen, it was over 15,000 or around 15,000 there on the Saturday yeah, which still isn't anything to write home about necessarily compared to other teams in baseball, but it is an improvement. Mm -hmm. But but you see the difference in the energy in the ballpark from 10,000 to 15,000. So you say, what if there were 20,000 in there? What if there were 25,000 or 30,000? And it really, truly makes a difference for the players in that dugout. It improves their performance. There's no question about that. Uh, anybody who listened to the game and listened to the post-game show on Saturday specifically Heard the manager, Don Mattingly, talk about that. Miguel Rojas talked about what an impact the crowd had on the game. I talked to several players myself the day after 
Uh, it makes such a difference. It's such a fun atmosphere. For the broadcasters, it's more fun to be a part of that atmosphere. The fans have a better time. So hopefully we're seeing a, a turn beginning there as well. But certainly a long way to go, but some encouraging signs of late. Yeah, sure. And um, just a couple of other topical bits while, while we're on. Um, the All-Star selection was made on Sunday as well. And Sandy was the man this year. Thought, thoughts on Sandy for the All-Star representative? You know what? I'm happy for him. I made the comment on the broadcast when the Marcelo Zuna trade was made uh, two Decembers ago. Who would have believed that it would be Sandy Alcantara who would be the first player out of that trade to go to an All-Star game, not Marcelo Zuna. Uh, yeah. I'm happy for Sandy coming off kind of a rocky outing his last time out. But before that, he was pitching very well. He's had some tremendous starts. It, it was a tough call. Uh, you know, every team has one player minimum on the all-star team. And I think a lot of the time what it comes down to is Sandy may or may not have been the single most deserving Marlin. But when you get down to the final pieces of the roster, uh, they might have needed a pitcher more than they needed an outfielder or more than they needed a, somebody in a different position. And they need yeah. a Marlin. They need a pitcher. Well, Sandy Alcantara is the guy. You know, had he not gotten hurt, I think Caleb Smith was on his way to being that guy. Yeah. Uh, Don Mattingly, in the last week or 10 days, had kind of lobbied for Miguel Rojas based on mm -hmm. the energy, what he's meant to this team. And all of a sudden, as hot as he's been for the last five, six weeks, the numbers are starting to look pretty impressive, too, though he doesn't hit any home runs. But you watch yeah. him defensively. He's got his average up into the 280s. He leads the team in doubles. He brings such energy every night. Uh in a way, if I were to root for somebody, I would have been rooting for Miguel Rojas to get that recognition because of all that he's overcome over the years as a guy who was kind of thought of as a, a no-hit utility guy who's gotten a chance to play every day and has really taken advantage of that over the last couple of years. He's such an easy guy to root for, and he's such a leader on the team. Uh, but I'm happy for Sandy, and you hope that he can build on this now, maybe from a confidence standpoint, and see the recognition that he's received uh, go out to Cleveland, and whether he gets into the game or not, maybe meet some of these other all-stars and glean some wisdom from some of the veteran players. Uh, hopefully it, it's a nice point in his career where he can really take off after this. Yeah, I agree. It, one of my favorite moments of this season and all the time I've watched the Marlins, actually, was that Sunday performance, the complete game against the Mets. Yep. He, he just destroyed them in about 45 minutes, it felt like. It, was, it felt uh, like it. Uh, and he had the great start against Colorado in his season yeah. debut where he threw eight scoreless innings. So we've seen Alcantara at his best. And we've talked about a lot with him. And Don Mattingly's talked about this. The pitching coach, Mel Salamar Jr., has talked about this a lot. Is His stuff is good enough to succeed at this level. He needs to trust his stuff and just be aggressive and attack hitters. And when you see him do that, he's very successful. Uh, sometimes, as a young pitcher especially, you can give major league hitters too much credit and think you need to be a little bit too fine and not come in and not give in. Uh, but when Sandy's aggressive, he's at his best. And hopefully uh, he's kind of over a hump now and he'll stay that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think deserved it. He's he's definitely had a had a good season. You're right, Caleb also had a great start. He's obviously been on the IL for a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, maybe that played into it. I don't know. And uh, you're right, Miggy has been awesome but equally as well I know Craig Mish was was saying you know what what about uh you know Garrett Cooper uh you know if he was playing all year he would yeah, have been I, I think Cooper had been around all year but if you look at the numbers he's really only played about half the games I yeah. think a couple of days ago he finally hit the mark where he played in half the game so he missed so much time 
Yeah. Uh, and the other side of that is, like I said, in the case of Alcantara, if you need a Marlin, maybe you need a pitcher on the team. There's so many good first basemen that made it tougher for Cooper. That's one of the reasons why I thought Miggy might have had a chance because of his mm-hmm. versatility. He can play anywhere in the infield. He can even play the outfield if you need. And sometimes late in an all-star game, you just need somebody to play a random position. Miggy could go just about anywhere for you. Yeah. But uh, th- there's a lot that goes into those selections. Uh, so, you know, it's not always the single most deserving player off every team that goes, but I'm happy for Sandy. Yeah, me too. How, how active do you think the Marlins are going to be? Uh, we're obviously in, into July now, so the trade deadline approaches. How, how active do you think they'll be this year? It's going to be interesting. Um, I, I think they will make moves that they think are going to improve them, which sounds like a silly thing to say, but... I don't think they're going to make trades just for the sake of making trades. It's not like they have to shed payroll. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they brought some veteran players in, Curtis Granderson, Neil Walker, and Sergio Romo, all guys who, when he sat there in spring training, he said those could be trade trips potentially come July. They're not players because of their age with long-term futures with the Marlins, but if they have great first halves, they could be players of interest to other teams. And maybe you get uh, not a huge piece back, but some kind of a piece that might help you moving forward in the long run. Uh, They've all kind of had some ups and downs so far this year. Romo's had a lot of saves. He's only blown one save, but the bottom line numbers for Romo aren't great. Uh, Nonetheless, there could be a contender who sees him as a guy who could help them out in the seventh inning or the eighth inning. Uh, You know, Neil Walker just missed a lot of time, missed about 22 games with a quad straight. He was swinging the bat very well before the injury. Uh, he's a guy who can play a few different positions, a switch hitter, might have some value to somebody, but I don't think any of those guys bring back a huge game-changing type piece. So uh, you have certain teams, like the Mets, for example, who, if they decided it's time to start from scratch, could trade a Noah Syndergaard and get a huge return. Uh, yeah. They could trade a, a Zach Wheeler, potentially, though he's coming up on free agency, and they get a bigger return. I don't think you see the Marlins making a deal for a huge return at this point. Uh, you know, some have speculated, well, with these three young pitchers coming up, maybe they've got some starting pitching they could trade and they could get a decent return for that. Uh, to me, I'm not wild about trading pitching away because you see how much of it you need over the course of the long haul. And if anything, uh, you mentioned Caleb Smith's name and Caleb ought to be back this weekend, it looks like. When Caleb Smith comes back, a lot of people have said, well, who's going to go down to AAA? Yeah. To me, I think you're at a point where some of these starting pitchers start moving into the bullpen. Because the bullpen's really been an issue for the Marlins this year. Uh, and if one of your starters goes into that bullpen, he's stretched out, give you multiple innings, that's a way to improve the bullpen. Look at the Atlanta Braves, and, and they've moved Sean Newcomb, a starter, to the bullpen. They've done it with Tuki Toussaint. They've done it with Kevin Gossman since Dallas Keuchel joined the team. Uh, I think you can add some of those starters to the bullpen mix. And even now when you look down at the minor leagues, they've got a lot of pitchers who are starting who they're just not going to have a spot for in the big leagues. So does somebody like a George Guzman, who's at double A right now, throws 100 miles per hour as a starter, does he profile as a back-end reliever at some point in the not-too-distant future? Uh, I think, you know, that's going to be a very interesting decision this team has to make. Could some of the pitchers currently in the rotation, and I'll just use Trevor Richards as an example. Trevor Richards is a pitcher with a great fastball changeup. He struggled with the third and fourth pitch. He struggled the third time through the batting order. Might he profile better out of the bullpen? Had he not gotten hurt, would Jose Urania maybe profile better out of the bullpen with the stuff that he has? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, more than looking ahead to the trade deadline, which to me is going to be relatively quiet, there could be a small move or two. Um, mm-hmm. I'm intrigued as some of these pitchers get healthy and come back 
what they might do with them and who might end up in the bullpen. Yeah, uh, we were talking about exactly this topic last week. Um, I think we were we were planning ahead and thinking Caleb was going to be back mm-hmm. uh, last week, and he ended up making a, a second rehab start. So, you know, the decision ha- hasn't had to be made just yet, but it will have to be soon uh, if everyone remains healthy, of course. So, yeah, interesting to see how that one goes. Um, what are you expecting out of the Marlins for the second half uh, of the year? I mean, All-Star break's just about coming after we wrap up with uh, the Nats and Braves, and then we're into the break and then into the, the second half. What are you expecting to see from the guys? Yeah, hopefully just continued growth. We talk about it a lot. Uh, you want to be better at the end of spring training than at the beginning of spring training. You want to be better in May than you were in April. And this team has done that. This team was better in May than in April, better in June than in May. Uh, and if they can continue to play 500 or better baseball the rest of the way, to me, they're going to end up winning a lot more games than most people anticipated at the start of the year. And I think that that fans who choose to open their eyes to the reality of what's happening on the field and won't just be blinded by the history will have to begin to acknowledge, you know what, this build-up process is really working. And in fact, with the pitching arriving as quickly as it has, it might even be a little bit ahead of schedule. And mm-hmm. nobody's wanted to put a time frame on anything. But what the Marlins have said in the past is when we know we have the pitching rotation, bullpen that's ready to compete and win, then we're going to go out, we'll add bats. We'll fill in, whether it's through free agency, you can bring bats in through trade, through the draft. You know, they've just recently drafted some advanced college bats to get to the big leagues sooner rather than later, potentially. Uh, so I think the fact that the pitching has made the jump that it has this year is so encouraging uh, and really leads you to believe that uh, things are going to be better in 2020 than you might have thought and better in 2021 than you might have thought, uh, that maybe this process is advancing a little bit. And so that's, for me, what I want to see in the second half. I want to see the team better in July than in June, better in August than in July. Just keep making progress individually and collectively uh, and keep taking steps forward. Makes sense. That's uh, it's been fun to watch. That's that's for sure this season. Um, you're right. Bit of a slow start, <laughs> I think, is one way. Very slow. Very yeah, slow. Bit slow. But you look but... back at it, and, and you look at the amount of time that Garrett Cooper missed early on, and several players got off the slow starts, and it took the rotation a little while to kind of hit its stride. And, and you can see this is a different team today than the team that was ten and thirty-one. So there are some people who still say, "Well, yeah, they've been better lately, but they're still in last place. They still have a lousy record." Well, it's hard to overcome a 10 and 31 start, but you can see the progress. And uh, to me, that's very encouraging. How do you see the NL East kind of shaping up, shaping up whether this year and, and beyond? I mean, it's a competitive division for sure, but, you know, the Mets look in trouble. Phillies have been in a bit of a, a rocky spell themselves. You know, how, how do you see it playing out for, for the division itself? When the season started, we were actually in spring training, and I predicted the Nationals to win the division this year. I knew the Braves had won it last year, and I thought the Braves would be better this year than they were last year. But I thought the Nationals adding Patrick Corbin, having the young outfielders, Robles and Soto, and in a way, not having Bryce Harper, I thought might alleviate kind of, kind of a monkey off their backs a little bit. A guy who dominated the conversation, a guy who dominated the clubhouse, as talented as he is, I thought they might even uh, take off a little bit with him moving on. Uh, they got off to such a dreadful start. They were 19-31 and 31 over their last 50 games. At one point, they were just a game and a half in front of the Marlins on Memorial Day weekend here. Uh, the Marlins were right behind them when we came into Washington to play a series that weekend. Uh, came in here May 25th. And uh, they've gotten hot. 
and I think they're going to give the Braves a run for their money still. I think those two teams are clearly the two best teams in the division. I think they'll both make the playoffs one way or another. Uh, I was a little suspect of the Phillies all along, wasn't sure they had enough pitching, and I think that's exactly what we've seen play out. Uh, And as good as their lineup ought to be, they haven't scored runs like you'd think they would. And the Mets have just been a train wreck. Uh, It's been on and off the field, just a soap opera watching the Mets. And to me, that's a team that uh, was very aggressive with a new general manager this past offseason, but may need to look to reload and and restart and retool a little bit because the mix of guys they have just isn't working. Uh, And off the field, it's just one thing after another. So, uh, you know, I... I wouldn't be surprised, quite honestly, when it's all said and done to see the Marlins ahead of the Mets in the standings. And I don't think anybody saw that coming when the season began. No, I, I think that's fair. And uh, you're right, it's been a real soap opera with the Mets. Um, just before I let you go, Glenn, because I know uh, you're in D.C. at the moment and you'll be prepping up for today's game. But it, it, it'd be wrong for us not to touch on the London series briefly. Um, it's been a big, big weekend of, uh, of baseball in the U.K. and, and for Europe. Um, did you manage to catch any of the games yourself and see any, any of the action? I didn't see any of it live simply because the games were on right around the time we were playing. Uh, I saw some highlights. I saw a lot on social media, read a lot about it, and it sounded like it was a tremendous experience for the players, uh, more so for the Yankees and the Red Sox, the way the games played out. Uh, I hope the fans had a great time. From so much of what I saw, it seemed like they did. I know it was so oppressively hot, and I know the games took so long. And uh, I, I worry about fans who have never watched Major League Baseball live having that be the first experience they have with baseball because games generally don't take four hours and 43 minutes. Uh, and, you know, I, ideally games would take 230 to 245. Normally they take closer to about three hours. Uh, but, you know, it's a huge conversation across Major League Baseball. Pace of play and time of game is a concern for baseball in general, but 443 is inhumane. Uh, so I hope the fans had as good a time as uh, I, I would have liked. Uh, and I'm excited the Cubs and the Cardinals will be there next year. I'd love to see the Marlins there at some point in the not-too-distant future as well. But, you know, it's important for Major League Baseball to grow the game globally. Uh, and and I'm amazed by some of the pictures and video I saw. And, and again, to come back from where we began, I'm amazed that there are Marlins fans like you and uh, and the rest of the guys on the podcast uh, and just baseball fans. I saw some stuff you tweeted out. Uh, over the weekend and fans with jerseys representing all 30 teams. That's great. Uh, It really is exciting for the future of the sport. So hopefully as time goes on, you'll see more kids playing baseball in the UK, uh, more people following it on television and radio, more people talking about it as you guys are, and uh, more chances to see live baseball. And uh, I'd love to see some uh, fans come over and see us at Marlins Park as well. I hope you let me know if you come out. Oh, 100% be doing that, Glenn, for sure. Um, now, you've, you've sparked interest across the, the podcast guys with your uh, your invite the other day. That's Yeah, for you guys, that's I meant what I said, too. You let me know when you're there, you're my guest at Marlins Park. Oh, you, you're a good man. I appreciate that. Uh, we need to just clear it with the wives and girlfriends first, and then uh, <laughs> we should be all set. So. Outstanding. Excellent. Well, Glenn, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you joining me. It's been awesome chatting to you. Um, I hope we can we can hook up again for another another chat later in the year. Uh, we can we can work out how the Marlins have done in in the second half. Um, but until then, thanks again so much, Glenn. Where where can everyone if they aren't following you, which I'm sure they will, but where can they get you on Twitter? On Twitter at Glenn Geffner, G L E N N 
G-E-F-F-N-E-R. So two N's in Glenn, two F's in Geffner. And uh, Peter, thank you to you for what you're doing for the Marlins and for Major League Baseball. Uh, it's tremendous. And I really do look forward to talking to you again in the future anytime you like. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Glenn. We'll speak Thanks, soon. Peter.